Hi, I'm Kirk Megu, host of Politics and Polemics on the New Books Network. I also host my own podcast called Independent Thought and Freedom, where I interview some of the most interesting people from around the world who are shaking up politics, economics, society, and ideas. You can find it in the iTunes store or on any one of your favorite podcast providers. You can also subscribe to my YouTube channel. Also, are you an academic that wants to get heard nationally? Check out my free training on three steps how to use your intellectual authority to become a media personality at becomeapublicintellectual.com. That's becomeapublicintellectual.com. You can find the links below. And now, on to this week's episode. Hi, today my guest is Catherine Stewart, author of the new book, The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism, published by Bloomsbury in 2019. Catherine Stewart is an American journalist and also the author of The Good News Club, The Christian Rights Stealth Assault assault on America's Children in 2012. Her writing has been published in the New York Times, The Guardian, The American Prospect, Reuters, The Atlantic, Newsweek, Rolling Stone, Santa Barbara Magazine, and other outlets. Welcome, Catherine. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure. Um, I'm I'm from I'm talking to you from Trinidad and Tobago. It's it's warm and sunny here. What about you? Where where are you located? <laughs> I'm in the New York area, and it's warm and sunny here as well. Thank you. Very for very good. Well, can you uh, just tell the way we like to start off is just for you to tell our listeners a little bit about your background, particularly as it relates to the book. Sure. Well, you know, if you had told me uh, 15 years ago I was going to start focusing on the religious right politics and policy in my work, I really would not have believed it. But I started to get interested in this topic in 2009. Uh, We were living, I was living with my family in Santa Barbara, California, and something called a Good News Club came to my children's public elementary school. I had a daughter in the first grade at the time. Uh, Good news clubs are designed to convert very little children in their earliest years of learning, often too young to read, into a deeply fundamentalist form of evangelical Christianity. And they confuse little kids into thinking the public school endorses their form of religion. Uh, They encourage children attending the clubs to proselytize and recruit their classmates. So I was really astonished to learn there were thousands of these clubs operating in public schools nationwide. Um, but I was quite naive at the time. I, they uh, claimed to be non-denominational, and I thought that meant non-sectarian. And I actually think it's fine to teach about religion, even in public schools, um, uh, from a non-sectarian standpoint. You can teach about the Bible uh, you know, as, as history or as uh, literature or as sort of a, you can talk about different kinds of mythology, as my children have learned in their public schools, living, learning about different religious traditions and the different mythologies that they teach. But when I learned that they were really um, a sectarian group that was uh, intended to proselytize children in public schools, in a diverse public school setting, this seemed quite inappropriate to me. Um, it seemed uh, the arrival of the club was very 
divisive in our own public school community. Uh, but um, the more I learned about the clubs and the movement behind them, the more concerned I became. So I was really stunned to learn about the movement's legal sophistication, its determination, and its coherence, uh, and very, very high level of strategic thinking. Uh, they, the, the appearance of the clubs had been deemed legal because of the legal strategy, a very particular legal strategy. So I got really interested in um, how they were, you know, how it was possible that they were in public schools and what they represented. And the more I learned about them, I, I realized that Good News Clubs were really just one part of a larger attack on public education as a whole. Yeah, and you, you were a journalist at the time oh, as yeah. well, right? Yeah, That's so. right. I, mean, I got my start in investigative reporting um, early in my career. I was um, a, uh, an intern for the great investigative journalist Wayne Barrett at the Village Voice and continued to do some investigative work. But, you know, I, I got married, had a couple of kids. I published a couple of novels. I co-wrote uh, with a friend a book about the musical Rent, and I was just kind of on a different track at the time that we were living in Santa Barbara. And this, I, I also life. think it's probably interesting to point out that you, you also are not from a Christian background, correct? That's true. My family is Jewish, and uh, mm -hmm. my husband was uh, raised in a Catholic family. So, as a sort of interfaith family, I you know, have always enjoyed different aspects of our religious traditions. And when yeah, we were that's living in... Mm -hmm. Similar to me, I mean, I was, I, I mean, I'm a Hindu, but my father is Catholic and, yeah, and, and so we grew up in a multi-religious household. And, and yeah, I, and I could understand how personally, you know, when you're dealing with um, proselytizing events in, in school, yeah, how that well, could <laughs> be an well, issue. Well, the interesting thing is it's not sort of exclusive issue for just religious minority groups. I mean, even Christianity in, in America is incredibly diverse. And the arrival of the club proved really um, uh, divisive, even in a diverse Christian community. Uh, neighbors fought bitterly about it. Um, our school was in the same district as an evangelical college, the Westmont College, but even the, and most of my friends at uh, who were like you know school moms were affiliated with Westmont in some way. They were either um, professors themselves or wives of professors, and a lot of them were really upset about the arrival of the club in our community as well. Um, uh, evangelicalism is diverse. Uh, they thought it was really inappropriate for them to be proselytizing one particular strain of religion in the public school. So a number of these uh, parents, uh, Westmont-affiliated parents, actually met with the leaders of the Good News Club and said, you know, we're Christians too, but we really don't think you're right uh, in a diverse school community, um, diverse in terms of Christian faith and also other faiths. And mm -hmm. the Good News Club leaders declined. They insisted on being in the public school. Interestingly, they were actually offered free and better space in the evangelical church that was literally next door to the school at the same time. And they declined. Right. They insisted on being in the school. And that's really what got me questioning it. Who are the people behind the Good News Clubs? What do they really believe? And why don't they want to be in their church? Why are they insisting on being in our public school? And that so, kind so of how, uh, set me on that larger path. So, um, so how much is this book a sequel to that? Um, is it very much uh, a sequel? It, it, does it go off on another 
tangent or, or how, so what's the relationship between the two books? Well, the first book really focused on public education, but the, my current book, the, the Power Worshippers, shows that uh, is really focused on the larger tack on America as a modern um, constitutional democracy. Uh, and I got really interested. Look, I think a lot of would-be defenders of democracy today don't really have a clear understanding of what they're up against. I wanted to remedy by that by pulling the curtain, if you will, on the religious rights leading organizations uh, and most intriguing personalities, key organizations. It's a the um, organ uh, religious right is made up of a number of of organizations like you know policy groups, legal advocacy groups, data organizations. They've invested for decades in all of the infrastructure of modern political campaigns. Um, you know, when, uh, they, look, Trump, I think if you look at the effect of their work, people sometimes ask, sometimes ask how much power do they really have? I think we can look at the 2016 election of Donald Trump. He would not have won without this movement's support. They put the machinery of their movement behind him. So they have a really impressive get out the vote machine. And so I kind of wanted to unpack that by showing how it works. Okay. Now, one of the, the key concepts in the book or the key ideas is Christian nationalism. Although the, the, um, the, the title uh, is religious nationalism, but it, but it's really focusing on Christian nationalism, correct? Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah. So, I, how, yeah, so could, could you uh, define that for us and just explain why that's important? Sure. The thing to know about religious nationalism or Christian nationalism is, is that it's, first of all, not a single religion. It's a political ideology. Its representatives insist that the foundation of legitimate government is bound up with a reactionary understanding of a particular religion. Uh, Christian nationalism essentially says that the United States is based on the Bible, uh, not on the Constitution, and that we really need to have to somehow get back to our nation's uh, Judeo-Christian or Christian uh, founding. Sometimes they call it Judeo-Christian. Um, so it's really an anti-democratic movement. It's anti-pluralist and it's anti-equality. Uh, it says that the U.S. can succeed only if it stays true to this um, religious foundation. Now, Christian nationalism is also a device for mobilizing and often manipulating large segments of the public for controlling their vote and for concentrating power in the hands of a new elite. Um, I want to say something else about what yeah. the movement is not. It's not just about evangelicals. A lot of people characterize this as a white evangelical movement. It's, that's not complete. The movement includes many evangelicals, but it also excludes many evangelicals. And it includes many um, varieties or representatives of both Protestant and non-Protestant religion. What unites the movement is not so much a distinct theology, but a common political vision. Now, I, a lot of people would be familiar, especially, I suppose, older listeners, let's say the moral majority, you know, big in the 1980s and whatnot with Ronald Reagan. You see um, that moral majority movement as uh, being part of this Christian nationalism or is or do you think 
you see Christian nationalism as something new? It's uh, an extension of many of the movements of the past, the so-called moral majority, or what many leaders of a, um, a, a political movement called the new right uh, have played a key role in the development of what we're seeing with today's uh, hyper-political religious right and incredibly empowered religious right, I would, I would say um, uh, uniquely empowered religious right uh, or Christian nationalist movement. So um, that movement uh, started up in uh, the 80s uh, when a number of thinkers, including Paul Weyrich, uh, Richard was the founder of the Heritage Foundation, Richard Vigri, um, Jerry Falwell was part of it, Phyllis Schlafly was involved. They were really unhappy about the direction the culture was taking. A lot of them were very upset about the civil rights movement, the women's rights movement. They were concerned about issues uh, related to prayer in schools. But one of the key issues that animated that movement in its earlier days was a fear that racially segregated academies might be deprived of their lucrative tax exemptions. At the time, the IRS was starting to look at these racially segregated religious schools and saying, you know, questioning, why are they getting their tax exemptions? So Jerry Falwell and many of his fellow Southern white conservative pastors were really upset about this. Um, they were, um, you know, as far as they were concerned, they had a right not only to segregate people, but also to receive federal money for the purpose. So they kind of coalesced around this fear that the Supreme Court might end these tax exemptions. Um, but they knew that this wasn't really going to be an effective rallying cry to inspire a kind of broad-based, hyper-conservative counter-revolution. They were really unhappy with the liberalism of what they saw as uh, infused, infused into the Republican Party at the time. So, so they sort of went down a laundry list of what they thought might unite their movement. We're talking like around 1979 or so. This is around six years after Roe versus Wade. So I guess the movement actually coalesced, we should say, in the 70s rather than the 80s. Yeah. So they sort of went down this list of issues that they might be able to use to unite their movement, you know, thinking about civil rights and women's rights and, and, and prayer in schools. And then they kind of got to abortion and they basically said, wow, that could work. So, you know, um, what happened is over time, they were able with the abortion issue to um, unite conservative Protestant and conservative Catholic membership and draw in, as one of the members of the New Right said, some of our fringe friends and, and create this new hyper-conservative movement that sort of drew the Republican Party to the right. And we have to remember at that time how the party, they knew if you can get people to vote on a single issue, you can control their votes. If you can sort of unite everyone around one issue, you can basically control their vote. Let's remember at the time when Roe v. Wade was, Roe v. Wade was passed and abortion was legalized, most Protestant Republicans supported it. Uh, there was a piece that ran in the Southern Baptist Convention's wire service that actually hailed the decision. They had passed, um, they had passed resolutions approving of uh, abortion law liberalization. Uh, Ronald Reagan passed the most ab liberal abortion law in the country in 1967. And figures like Betty Ford hailed Roe v. Wade as a great, great decision. But activists like Phyllis Schlafly and Paul Weyrich saw the potential for this issue, issue to sort of unite this new movement. 
and over time purged those pro-choice voices from the Republican Party. And it was a way of sort of dragging the party off to the right. And, um, you know, there were other activists involved, Ralph Reed, um, uh, Richard Vigory, in many ways, they sort of worked in other lines of developing the movement. But over time, it's really uh, come to a point where we're now seeing unprecedented political power. Right. So, so um, just to, to kind of clarify, so, so the term Christian nationalism, the, the groups themselves that you're talking about in the book, they don't actually use that term for themselves, do they? You know, I use a lot of different terms in the book. Um, I use the term religious nationalism in the title because mm-hmm. I wanted to make clear the movement's similarities with other forms of religious nationalism around the world. And in fact, I report that in the book. I report on, uh, in my chapter 12, I uh, go in, among others, I go into what uh, they call the so-called global conservative movement, which is, um, has declared a war on global liberalism. I use that term because I wanted to show that this is not just an American phenomenon. It's, um, uh, it, it bears common features with other forms of religious nationalism around the world. So when we see leaders like Putin in Russia, for instance, or Orban in Hungary, or Erdogan in Turkey, binding themselves to religious conservatives in their countries in order to consolidate a form of um, a more authoritarian form of political power, we rightly recognize that as a form of religious nationalism. And I think that's what we're seeing today with Trump's alliances with our own religious hyper-conservatives. Okay. Um, <clears throat> now, it, I, I know you're focusing on the Christian nationalism, but uh, in, in the United States, um, how you, would you differentiate it from, let's say, you know, uh, radical Islamic movements that might be calling for Sharia law or maybe, you know, Zionists who, you know, seek to influence uh, American foreign policy in Israel. Um, do, you, do you see it as part of that same family or, or, do you, or do you see this as something different? I think there are different features. Uh, different places have different features, obviously, um, uh, in different parts of the world. But I think that Uh, These types of religious nationalism have been used over time and throughout history to consolidate a more authoritarian form of uh, political power. And what's really interesting about it is that it doesn't always um, rely, like the leader isn't always himself, and it's always, almost always a him, right? Um, Doesn't always embody these religious values. So if you think about Mussolini, who is like an atheist, you know, who happily fathered uh, a child out of wedlock, and yet he was imposing sort of uh, Catholicism as a state religion in Italy, and he was an authoritarian leader. We think about people like Franco, who sort of uh, in Spain, who did the same thing. So these, this is a type of thing that has been used over time. Yeah, and today, I mean, you see that with, with Trump and uh, Matteo Salvini, for example, in Italy. Yes. Yeah, that, that um, it's, it's interesting that, you know, the people who, who champion uh, the church as, as, I don't know, I suppose a part of, of uh, traditional society uh, may not necessarily be the most pious of people. <laughs> that's true. I mean, that's the thing. Even if you're not yourself uh, exactly a model rule follower, you are still seen as a champion of hierarchies, of custom, tradition, 
gender and family. I mean, right-wing authoritarians believe in rules, but they don't believe in the rule of law. And that's another reason why I think, you know, religious conservatives tend to come to their side. America's culture warriors might talk a good game about religious liberty and government tyranny and their unwavering commitment to the Constitution. Um, But the leaders, they actually, I think, would be happy to sort of trash the Constitution if it fails to deliver what they want it to deliver. And we think about um, how uh, uh, Trump doesn't appear to have much respect for the Constitution. You know, it's interesting. People often call them religious conservatives. I think sometimes the um, the question, the language, what language is difficult because sometimes it's hard to know exactly what we're looking at. But um, if we think about, you know, whether this is a movement that's genuinely conservative, a genuinely conservative movement would want to preserve institutions of value that have been crafted over centuries of American history. It would prize, for instance, the integrity of electoral politics. It would seek to protect the vote. Religious nationalists are, in America are actually engaging in race-based gerrymandering and voter suppression. They, they're trying to degrade the vote. Uh, President Trump himself said in an audio call, if, if everybody who voted, then a Republican would never win. Richard Vigri himself, we spoke about him a little earlier. He's one of the leaders in the new right. He's got a, you can actually find it. You can see audio, a video of him saying, I don't want everyone to vote. Our influence in elections goes down when the number of people go up, of of voters go up. You know, I mean, think about a, a real conservative movement would actually value the legitimacy of the judiciary. And, uh, and uh, unfortunately our, uh, our, uh, our yeah. religious conservatives don't. They have no trouble stealing seats and packing the court as long as it gets it gives them the rulings that they want. Yeah, I, I think it's uh, it's an important point you make. A, a, a couple of, a couple of those points you you raised there and 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 expanded on, and I'd like to perhaps expand a little further. Uh, I'm interested in a lot of the ideas behind it as well as 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 the historical timeline that. That really takes up the, the bulk of your book. But on, on the ideas part, I think it's it's very important what you just said, that the language is difficult. And, mm. and then, and you know, you, you have these, you know, the, the thing about, um, I, I, I like that distinction you make about, you know, believing in rules versus the rule of law. I, I, I suppose you're, you're talking about the, the process they find uh, uh, difficult or objectionable in, a, uh, uh, in, in, in that sense. Um, th- that liberal process, but but even even um, you know, uh, like you talk about conservatism, uh, that's something I've I've thought about a long time. Um, you know, what Americans call conservative conservative is is um, certainly not what the in the French Revolution or or in England um, what they would call conservative. It's it's really a kind of nineteenth um, century liberalism in America um, that that is kind of conservative and. Um, and and then things like the even the idea of of nationalism. I'm I'm wa- I, I'm wondering if if even the term nationalism is is, is correctly applied to the movement. Um, I, and and I know you use terms like theocracy. I I, I don't know if, if theocracy is, is, is also the exact so word. Much, actually, no, I I don't look. I think 
I think when we're understanding, you know, trying to understand the movement, well, there's so much to say here. Um, first, yeah. I'm going to say it's really hard to talk about the political aspects of religious groups without appearing to bash religion. And mm-hmm. there is a distinction. You know, my my interest is not in criticizing religion. It's really in trying to help people understand that what they call religion is often really partisan agitation and partisan yeah. activism. Now, I, I do think it's really helpful in trying to understand the movement to distinguish between the leaders and the rank and file. When yeah. you're talking about the rank and file, you're talking about a very wide range of people with very different interests and backgrounds and ideas. Um, so I think something to bear in mind that is that a substantial number of them do not support anything like a theocracy. And many of them would be unhappy to learn all of the details of what their leaders are proposing. A lot of them, when they're voting for uh, leaders who promise to end abortion or reunite church and state, they're really voting on identity and not so much policy. Yeah. So they might agree with the idea, the general idea that America is a Christian nation, but they aren't explicitly aiming for major fundamental changes in the way government is organized. They're really just making a statement about who they are and what they value in themselves. So their their ideas might uh, their identity might be sort of Christian nationalist, but really only in a loose way. But I think for leaders of the movement, like the heads of the right wing policy groups and networking groups and media and legislative initiatives and the like, their vision really involves a lot more power for themselves and their networks and the political leaders that they support. Many of them, if you really dig into what they say, they look forward to a time when only Christians in their approved versions of the religion are in charge of all major areas of government and society. And when, you know, they're also looking for a time when they can, you know, look to the government for two things. Number one, a constant flow of taxpayer money. And number two, policies that privilege their religion. Yeah, I I think, you know, um, actually, probably what they are going for, and they would even agree with the term, I think, is Christian government. That's that's really what they want, isn't it? There are a lot of different um, uh, terms that are in use. Um, and, you know, I use a number of them in my book. And, you know, some of the terms that some people use are, I don't happen to use, but I think that, you know, we all have to use language that mm-hmm. resonates with us. Um, I think it's important to note that uh, religious authoritarianism almost never leads to a pure theocracy. And it definitely doesn't lead to a Christian democracy. What it ends up leading to is a kind of kleptocracy, actually, often mm-hmm. led by autocratic, irrational, often nepotistic leaders where organized hypocrisy takes the place of religion. Yeah, uh, yeah. So in, if, if we, um, the, the bulk of your book is, is sort of looking at the, the development of, of the Christian nationalist movement, uh, its various... Um, formative moments, its uh, development of its power, and so forth. Now, if if we were to sort of unify that whole movement, you know, if 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 we see there's a, a driving force behind it, what if from their point of view? Because I because I know you 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 did a lot of um, you know groundwork, let's say, kind of field work, talking to you know people, and you know, so from their perspective, um, what do they see? as the main problem in the politics. And, and I, I, I take it uh, to heart, too, that, that there is a difference between the leadership and followership. So 
So if you could even distinguish that, I think that would be um, useful. Well, what they would say is that they're in a war to the death against secularism. I mean, if there's, look, the movement has a lot of targets. You know, they're, they, they, um, they're always designed, you know, dividing, you know, the us and the, the them, the pure from the impure. And they're focusing their grievances of their base on demonic or dehumanized others. So the number one threat, I think, as they see it, is secularism. I mean, there are plenty of other yeah. targets singled out for hate, too. Progressive Christians and other progressive religious people receive a fair share of contempt. They're always being accused of promoting a false theology. Movement leaders are also decrying, um, you know, the uh, America's religious minority groups sometimes. Uh, um, and they're constantly warning us against what they call radical feminists or LGBT totalitarians and things like that. But when they're looking for a single target to blame, an internal enemy upon whom to focus their rage and hate, it's, it's often, you know, people who are non-believers. And, you know, if mm-hmm. they basically have, look, the aim of their movement is they're anti-pluralist and they're anti-equality. And so yeah. they, but they need to find um, a sort of place in order, you know, a, a like a scapegoat in, in, in a way mm-hmm. uh, uh, upon whom to blame all of society's ills. And they're, you know, they, they often focus this on, on secularists who they say are out there ransacking everything that's holy and good in our society. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I think that's, mm-hmm. yeah, as Franklin Graham said, progressive, that's just another word for godless. He's one of the sort of keys of missionary sort of leaders and, and uh, strategists he, they're always conflating liberal and progressive politics with the absence of belief in their God. And I have to say, look, innumerable officials in the Trump administration are completely on board with this program. Like, think about Attorney General Bill Barr. He delivered an infamous speech at, uh, at uh, uh, Notre Dame Law School where he mm-hmm. blamed secularists for what he called moral chaos and immense suffering, wreckage, and misery. And um, yeah that sort of contributes to how he directs his justice department on matters, uh, first amendment matters. You know, I, in, from my perspective in looking at this, um, it's, it's a really deep problem actually. And and it, I think it goes back all the way to the English revolution. Mm. I mean, because a lot of times when we learn about this stuff in school, you know, we, we, we sort of see, you know, the, you know, the, the, the forces of parliament versus the forces of, you know, of the king and, and that, you know, well, the parliament were democratic forces and, and, and we sort of project this modern liberalism onto them. But sometimes, I mean, when you look at Cromwell and, and the English Republic and stuff, I mean, they were uh, pretty radical Puritans. Uh, you know, they banned the celebration of Christmas because it was pagan. They smashed all the, uh, you know, stained glass uh, of, of the, the churches and, and defaced the statues, and, you know, like ISIS in so many ways. And, and in many ways, um, you know, the, I, I think the American Revolution sort of continued this, uh, you know, Puritan uh, revolution and, and the Calvinist republics of, of Europe and, and, uh, it's kind of like that movement went two ways, one in a sort of, you know, secularist, radical, liberal, or I don't know if radical is the right word, but, but let's say, you know, a secular, liberal um, trend. And, and then I guess you have this Christian nationalist trend and, and they're almost like, um, you know, uh, 
uh, you know, it's, 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 it's almost like, a, I suppose, what is it, Ishmael and, and, and Jacob or something coming from the same descendant, you know, and then warring. Um, do, do you see any sort of uh, uh, parallel with, with that or sort of relevant to your work? Then? Absolutely. I mean, the movement is really aiming squarely at um, pluralism, equality and critical thinking and the values of the Enlightenment above all. Those values are, ironically, are baked into our founding principles. They've been applied really imperfectly over time in so many ways, to be sure. But I think the extent to which we can pursue them, we spread, you know, spread justice and achieve great things. And when we try the opposite, religious authoritarianism, we spread injustice and pain. I think it's really interesting what you said about, um, you know, the monarchy. I think it's really relevant here. So. Um, I dug into, uh, in the book, uh, the sort of um, ideology of the movement leaders uh, by focusing on a fellow named Ralph Drollinger. He operates uh, an organization called Capital Ministry. It's a ministry that uh, targets political leaders at the highest levels of power. He has a Bible study taking place in the White House and U.S. Capitol. Uh, One of them is attended by, has been attended by at least 12 out of 15 current and former members of Trump's cabinet. And, you know, his political theology is strikingly regressive. He thinks that government assistance to the poor, um, gun control, allowing women to teach men, or hiring non-Christians to work in government are all unbiblical. He's actually criticized sound environmental policy as a false theology. But I have a, I read a book that he wrote in which he's always talking about kings. Interestingly, there's a lot of talk about kings among some of the leaders of this movement. And here's the thing about kings, you know, and they're also, also, uh, you know, comparing Trump often to biblical kings like King David or King Cyrus, uh, an imperfect ruler through whom God is going to enact his will. But here's the thing about kings. Kings don't have to follow the rules. They are all law unto themselves, which yeah. makes them a sort of perfect ruler for an anti-pluralistic, anti-democratic movement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Now, you know, you, you, you've mentioned um, throughout the discussion so far, you know, a lot of um, specific people, a lot of actors, and definitely in, in your book, you do that. Um, for the listeners right now, who would you say are some of the main actors, both um, existing right now and who are important um, in the present moment, but also, you know, looking back historically. Well, I mean, there are just so many, it's, you know, hard to have a, yeah. a short if, if, list if, here. If, if you were to choose three, have, let's say. Well, I, I can't choose three. It's like, you know, asking me to choose three of my favorite children if I have like, you know, five dozen of them. But um, I will tell you about one of them, uh, a right. very important personality, uh, a sort of mis- a mid-century theologian, named Rusas John Rushduni, the thing to know about him is he was really hostile to the principle of equality. He was a very influential theologian. A lot of his ideas and even a lot of the ways in which he expressed them have been adopted into the um, most some of the most well-connected Christian nationalist leaders of today, people like um, David Barton. We can get him to him afterwards. But let's talk about Rushduni first. He was intensely hostile to the idea of equality he endorsed an austere biblical literalism um, and rigid hierarchies, which he claimed were ordained by God. And he saw it as his job to rescue America from its commitment to what he called godless secularism. 
And his theology also included an opposition to government assistance to the poor. And he, he was a sort of, again, allied with that sort of pro, like, super right-wing, hyper-libertarian, economic wing of the Republican Party. He called social welfare programs, actually called them slavery to the state. So he shares a lot with the Christian nationalists of today, the idea of the United States as an authentically Christian nation chosen by God to be an orthodox um, Christian republic, sort of the idea of a theology that demands absolute submission, um, the idea that at some point America deviated horribly from this mission and fell under the control of atheist and liberal elites. This was the the life of uh, Rushduni's thought and remains a cornerstone of the thinking of a lot of the movement's leaders today. Now, one one thing in particular he wrote Mm -hmm. that has become a sort of an article of faith among the rank and file is the movement. He wrote that the First Amendment uh, aimed to establish religious freedom, not, he wrote, quote, not from religion, but for religion. So we hear this phrase widely parroted by movement leaders like David Barton all the time. Right, right, and um, so, so let's see. You you identify key points in the unfolding of this of this movement. Mm-hmm. Um, you have like abortion, which which we talked about, which would be from the seventies, and, and um, you also definitely go back to slavery, um, and then you know your various chapters like turning the states into laboratories, converting the flock to data global holy war Let, let's try to go through them uh bit by bit w- would you uh, would you say if if, if we go f- you know the first step historically chronologically speaking would you say it's it's during the slavery era i think there have always been different strains of religious thought in american history as uh, over time and we can look at the sort of um, difference between the abolitionist theologians and the pro-slavery theologians. Uh, as we know, there were theologians on both sides, and I write about um, many dozens of abolitionist theologians in my book, The Power Worshippers. I also write about the pro-slavery theologians, those who endorsed a very strict form of biblical literalism with the idea of hierarchies rooted in God and um So, you know, it's interesting. I'll see if I can find this quote. Um, I'm going to grab my book right now. This is the way sort of this, I write about in particular two pro-slavery theologians, uh, Robert Louis Louis Dabney and James Henley Thornwell. They were uh, very, um, two incredibly influential pro-slavery theologians that were allied on sort of the side of Mm. the slaveholders. So this is how... James Henley Thornwell put it. He said, the parties in this conflict, he was discussing the conflict between abolitionists and um, pro-slavery theology. He said, the parties in this conflict are not merely abolitionists and slaveholders. They are atheists, socialists, communists, red Republicans on the one side, and friends of order and regulated freedom on the other. So he was actually uh, um, conflating um, uh, people who wanted who wanted to promote equality and end slavery with atheists and communists and socialists. And, and, he this, was calling, was, and this was like 1860s? Yeah, I don't have the exact, um, I'm looking at my footnote here, but I don't want right, to like yeah, yeah. get lost in a, but you were talking, you know, in mid-80s. But at the you know, time, 80s, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. 
but so so and then there were pro slavery uh, pro there were abolitionist theologians but they were also on the whole on the side of women's rights too a lot yeah. of them like you know William Lloyd Garrison I'm thinking of, like I mean mm-hmm. think about this Frederick Douglass famously supported women's suffrage so you know uh, Charles Grandison fin- Finney who was another abolitionist theologian he encouraged female speakers at prayer meetings and this drew the condemnation of conservatives who who called his gatherings promiscuous assemblies so i think it's you know important to note um that you know frederick Douglass said that you know he noted the influence of the abolitionist theologians but he said um uh the ministers of high standing were almost to a man on the side of slavery high standing he meant the people mm-hmm. who were well funded the the yeah. rich ministers at that the time establishment yeah. the establishment were really on the side of slavery they were uh, endorsing a kind of these kind of strict hierarchies and an alliance with what they called you know pro- pro- property which of course included uh, very tragically the property uh, the idea that other human beings could be the property of others so some of these ideas have carried through um to today, now I think it's really important when you're talking about the um, racial back, uh, sort of racial makeup of the of today's uh, uh, religious right. The, you know, it's all it's very different. I think you know um, the question of race is is really critical here, and mm-hmm. you know I want to get into that a little bit. I think that um, it's often characterized as a white movement, and for many or perhaps even most people in the rank and file, it's an implicitly white movement because mm-hmm. I think for them, it's, it's part of a vision that involves recovering a nation that was once supposedly both Christian and white. So it's a mm-hmm. form of identity politics, tying America to a specific set of approved religious and cultural identities. Um, yeah. leaders, I, I, but I, well, I just want to say that, you know, leaders of the movement uh, have understand that the electoral future of the movement isn't, it can't be ethnically homogenous. Look, they want to win elections. So in recent years, they really tried to make an outreach effort to pastors of color in hopes of drawing in some number of their congregants. But, you know, there's an irony that these pastors are being enlisted to fight culture wars on behalf of this political party that engages in race-based gerrymandering and voter suppression, and of course, Trump appeals openly to the racism of so many of his followers, and um, and I think a lot of movement leaders sort of tend to paper over the ways in which hyper-conservative religion and racism reinforce each other. Yeah, I I think um, I think it's it's interesting to the way you do trace it, um, you know, the origins of this to the Civil War. Because um, I mean the the echoes of you know that that civil the American Civil War, you know, in in so many ways uh, still are so powerful in in the culture and and politics. Because yeah, that that division between um, you know what what is America, what um, you know. Uh, the what is Christianity in America as well? Um, really, you know, you're right. I think that um, you know that debate is, you know, although you know one would have thought it would have been resolved by the war, by that bloody war. It's um, it's it's still there. That tension is still the, unresolved. Exactly. I mean, you look, you know, a century later, we can look at people like Bob Jones Sr., um, you know, who was when his 
his uh, education, uh, educational establishment was threatened. That sort of was so upsetting to the leaders in the new right. He actually called segregation God's established order. And he, he, he referred to, it's the same kind of thing. He referred to desegregation as, as satanic propagandists and religious infidels who are trying to overst- overthrow the established order of God. It's the insistence that they think they know what God's order is and that God is on the side of, of you know, hierarchies of value. These hierarchies are established right. by God. And you see some of these ideas um, perpetuated by movement leaders today. Um, they're a little bit too savvy to try to do it around race. They certainly do it still around gender. Right, right. And and so so we talked um, earlier about how abortion was used to sort of coalesce and, and propel the moral majority in the 70s. And uh, then other chapters you have are like turning states into laboratories. Can you expand on that? That's an interesting um, concept. Exactly. Um, is that this uh, chapter I do about um, a project blitz? I don't have like the chapter list in front oh, of right. me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Turning states into laboratories, uh, laboratories of theocracy. Sorry, I used the oh, yeah, British no, pronunciation. No, no, that's quite all right. So Project Blitz is a broad-based legislative initiative. And I want to talk about that for a moment because it's really interesting. Are you familiar with the American Legislative Exchange Council or ALEC or there's it's um or there's an anti-abortion uh, organization called Americans United for Life. These okay. are right-wing organizations that craft pieces of model legislation. They allow legislators to easily introduce bills in different states without needing to actually research and, and write the bills themselves. It kind of right. gets all these different legislators on the right on the same you know with the same political vision on the same page. So Project Blitz works along similar lines. The idea is to overwhelm state legislators with uh, legislatures with so many religiously themed bills that some of them can be expected to get through and the center of debate on on certain issues get shifted to the right. So the ultimate aim for this project blitz, it's like it was actually a document that a number of religious right leaders collaborated on um, showing model legislation and sort of talking about their aims. The ultimate aim for them was to get this license for certain faith groups, um, conservative Christian groups, to discriminate against certain other groups and to conflate in the minds of the public their religion with the authority of government. It's basically, you know, the aim is a way of signaling to everyone through the law that there's a group in America that's privileged and authentically American and other groups that are not deserving of privilege and not deserving of rights. So sometimes when these bills are, you know, put through by legislators, let's just give you an example, like an In God We Trust bill, uh, bill like the one piece of the model legislation, it's very detailed um, number of different types of piece, but one piece was like, we want to get In God We Trust signs put up in every public school and they have to be a certain size. So a lot of people might see this bill and say, oh, In God We Trust, what's the harm of putting a God We Trust uh, sign up in every public school? And so people would sort of look at this in a sort of individual fashion. They might, some people might think it's not a big deal. Other people might think, well, it's not really religiously inclusive, is it? What about kids who aren't, um, you know, what kind of God are we implying, et cetera? Uh, We've got diverse, you know, kids of different diverse backgrounds. But, you know, the fact is that the, the larger document shows that these bills are pieces of a larger puzzle. And they show us that the 
the religious right understands that these bills not only relate to each other, but that they further their broader political vision. Right, right. And another um, chapter you have here, which is interesting, and, and I think it's important for you know the insight it, it provides to converting the flock to data. Um, that's because you know, a lot of times people think of you know the religious right as you know being a southern redneck hicks uneducated right and, and all those negative stereotypes but in fact you know a lot of them are, are very technologically savvy early adopters pioneers in a lot of um fields so i i think that um you you know when you speak about this converting flock to data it, it kind of highlights um their tech savviness can you expand on it a little bit more it really does i mean thanks for bringing that up i think um it, the idea that uh, the religious right is sort of, you know, I think a lot of the um, progressives misunderstand the sophistication of the movement. So in my, there are all these data initiatives that I write about in my, um, in my book. And one of the organizations I focus on is called United in Purpose. It's a, a data initiative that aims to turn out the vote for the hyper conservative candidates that the movement favors and um, a lot of the, um, uh, the founder of the organization is a fellow called Bill Dallas. And he's actually described the incredibly broad reach that his organization has in, the, um, in, 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 in data and in voter files. He gave an interview in 2016 in which he said, um, we have all, we have 200 million, this is sort of, I'm doing this by memory, so it might not be an exact quote. He said yeah. something like, we have 200 sure. million voter files in our databases, and we know it makes someone turn out to vote one way or not vote at all. I mean, think about that. And then they use this very careful social, um, sorry, psych, uh, profiling, you know, psych, psychological profiling. They, they know what people are, you know, members of conservative churches. They know what people are fans of NASCAR or fishing you know, things like this. They can suss this from people's social media posts and things like that. They know whether people have ever signed an anti-marriage equality list or an anti-abortion list. So they basically assign points to people, as Bill Dallas has explained. And if people... How how do they get this data? Well, you know, a a lot of the stuff is available through um, voter rolls, through membership, church membership lists. One of the things that they do is they offer conservative pastors a list of voter rolls and list of church membership. And so then they show the pastor what percentage of his congregation voted in the last election. They can actually do that. I mean, there's all kinds of crazy data available online. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, it's basically a data mining organization intending to turn out voters of what they call voters of faith for the so-called right candidates. Right, right, right. Interesting, interesting. And, it, and all look, all political um, parties of all persuasions, of course, now rely on data to um, sharpen their effectiveness in in elections. But the difference with an organization like United and Purpose is they're wor- working with a lot of church organizations um, and religious organizations, so they're on top of a long pyramid that's largely operating in the religious sphere. Um, which is largely exempt from taxes and, and public scrutiny. So that's a big difference, the fact that they're working through church organizations in that way. Mm-hmm. 
And now your the, the final uh, chapter in your book is something I'd like to uh, expand on a little too. Uh, global holy war comes of age. Um, the international um, links, um, and you know, you you mentioned like Orban and and Putin, and and I suppose you know some people you know put in. Yeah, you mentioned um, Erdogan in Turkey. Uh, you know, I I know some people would include Net, Netanyahu there and and so forth. And where um so how, what what is it, the um so, yeah so just outline your argument there for us please. Sure, I mean um I, under Trump, <clears throat> the United States has really become a a key player of this new tactical alliance. They call themselves a global conservative movement. <clears throat> they often unite over claims that they want to defend the family, but really it's about taking down modern democracy and replacing it with authoritarian faith-based ethno-states. These movements uh, tend to have you know, nuances specific to different countries. They certainly advocate for different policies in these areas. I'd be happy to talk about that. But each defines itself against a single common worldwide enemy, which is global liberalism, equality, and the values of the Enlightenment. So one of the things I did in this chapter when I was reporting it is I went to an annual conference of this movement. It was called the World Congress of Families. Um, It got its start over 20 years ago when American and Russian activists gathered in Russia to talk about areas of mutual interest and sort of grown now into this conference that takes place, I wouldn't say annually, but sometimes Mm biannually. I actually interviewed Brian Brown. Oh wow! Uh, but, yeah. What was that like? <laughs> yeah, interesting, interesting. Yeah. So, yeah. So, 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 so. Right. It's it, it's this global uh, movement. That yeah. That's great. Wow. That's very cool. Um. So yeah, I mean, I heard you know, for instance, a popular right wing American radio host uh, describe the group as being in a war with the. He called it the anti-cultural processes of globalization and its secular aristocracy. So then speaker after speaker hit familiar targets, the radical feminists, the abortion industry, and what they called LGBT totalitarians. And they were always, you know, telling us to sort of break the ice cap of political correctness and, you know, to make liberal politicians fear us. Um, But, you know, they they really have this kind of unmistakable vision about, um, you know, taking down... uh, liberal democracy and replacing it with a kind of much more authoritarian um, and uh, form of governance bolstered by, by a sort of um, religious conservatives. I think. How, how do you see their relationship with the alt-right? There, there's a lot of actually, uh, there's a lot of uh, connections. And I discovered some of those connections when I was sitting one day in an outdoor cafe within, you know, within a, you know, spitting distance of the convention center. And I saw a fellow named Ed Martin. I described this in my book, sitting down with a Polish uh, far-right politician named Dominic Tarszynski. And they were sort of talking about some, you know, issues that they wanted to collaborate on. And Ed Martin, he's the head of um, the Eagle Forum. It's one of sort of Phyllis Schlafly's organizations. And uh, Ed Martin used to be a commentator and uh, on CNN, and he sort of has ties to the Republican Party. And they were talking about uh, Ed Martin was sort of instructing him to tag 
Jack Posobiec, who is like the sort of conspiracy theorist, alt-right conspiracy theorist in one of his posts. So, mm-hmm. you know, the, I wouldn't say the religious right is the same as the alt-right, but there yeah. are a lot of connections. And if you look at a Venn diagram, you're going to see a lot of areas of interest. And I just want to point out, there's a new book um, by a wonderful writer named Sarah Posner that just came out. You should um, invite her onto your show. She writes explicitly about those links. She's done right. a lot of research in them, into them. Right. So where do you see Christian nationalism going? Do you, do you, do you see it getting stronger, more organized, um, or, or, or what? How, what, what do you see the direct, you, I mean, you've, you've, you've charted its history, you've charted its growth. Um, yeah, what's its future? I mean, I think the future of this movement is what we allow it to be. You know, the question is, are we going to continue down the same path that we've been on or are we going to be able to organize in order to, um, you know, reject the politics of conquest and division that this movement represents and, um, and be able to enact meaningful political change. Right. So in, in some, what message would you like to leave your readers with after, you know, they've read your book? Well, the challenges that this movement represents are political, and I think the solutions are political too. There are things that we can do as individuals, and there are things that we can do uh, collectively in groups. The right has invested for decades in data, media, and messaging, and all of the tools of modern political campaigns. They're using the tools of democracy to destroy democracy. And I think these same tools can be used to restore it. All right. Well, thanks so much for this interview. Uh, oh, and actually, before we go, let me just ask you, I mean, I, I know you're constantly active. Are you working on anything right now? Any okay, projects? Thank you so much for asking. I continue to write uh, uh, articles about this movement and different aspects of it and how it's uh, influencing um, the uh, politics today. Okay, good, good. Well, again, thanks so much for this interview. It's been really informative and, and enjoyable. Thank you so much. Likewise. Once again, the book is The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. And we've been speaking to the author, Catherine Stewart. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure too. Thank you. That's all for Politics and Polemics this week. If you like this, remember to check out my other podcast, Independent Thought and Freedom, and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Also, if you are an academic and want to get heard nationally, check out my free training at becomeapublicintellectual.com. Thanks, and see you next week.